for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Good morning. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke 6 and uh, down at uh, verse 20. Well, from verse 17, Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And if you remember, we are uh, pursuing the kingdom. So when they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. And there were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem, from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. And they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. And everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leave for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. What sorrows await you who are rich? For you have only your happiness now. What sorrows await you who are fat and prosperous now for a time of awful hunger awaits you? What sorrow awaits you who laugh now for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow? What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds for their ancestors also praised false prophets? But to you who are willing to listen, I say love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. And if someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. And then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High for he is kind to those who are unfaithful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others 
and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive and your gift will be returned to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. And the amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. We could stop there, you know, couldn't we? We could stop there and say, what do you do with that? And uh, elsewhere, Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. We need to kind of hang on to that scripture as we look at this aspect of pursuing the kingdom. And this morning, consider something of the, the dynamics of the kingdom of God called to pursue the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is quite unlike any other kingdom that has ever ever existed. No king like this one, no kingdom like this one. We're called to seek it first, not not in in a whole list of things as if it's number one at the top of a list of 20 that we, we mark off at the end of the day and say, I've done that, but we seek this as the priority, as the overarching thing that governs every aspect of our lives. This is the nature of the kingdom of God, that Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or his justice, and all these things will be added to you. To do so, it's essential that we understand the dynamics of the kingdom of God. Sooner or later, we will be confronted by them because of our own ways of thinking and doing things, the way that the world thinks and does things. So when we begin to look at this kingdom of God thing, when we begin to look at the way it operates, we'll suddenly find conflict within ourselves and conflict with the world around us because this kingdom operates on a different basis altogether. When we think of the word dynamics, the the dictionary defines it as the forces or processes that produce change inside a group or a system. So it's the dynamics of forces that produce change inside a group or a system. So when Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, he was preaching a certain dynamic that would have an impact upon those that he was talking to and beyond. There's a dynamic to this world. There are, there's a dynamic to the different cultures. There's dynamics in business, dynamics in politics, dynamics in marriage, dynamics to family life. There are dynamic forces for good or for evil. And there are especially dynamics to the, the kingdom of God. Dynamics that, when you look at it, seem illogical to the fallen mind. Illogical and a, it is a, a counterintuitive order to what we are used to, to what we have grown up with, to to what we have found perhaps in our normal everyday lives in this world, to the motives and the ways of this fallen world. And the Sermon on the Mount, or in the sense of Luke's Gospel, it could be the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is just such an example. And uh, the reason we read it from Luke's Gospel is really because we're so familiar with reading it from Mark's Gospel. We're, We're familiar with Mark 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus didn't preach this just once. He preached it probably many times. Wherever he went, this was, this was his unpacking of this kingdom that he was ushering in. And he wanted them to get the heart of this message because this message would go beyond the tinkering of things and it would go to the root of their hearts and lives. And, you know, when we think of mountains, we, we think of revolutionaries. It's, that's where the revolutionaries go because they can hide 
away. They can, they can work out their strategies and they can come down from the mountains and they, they can do their revolutionary stuff on the plains. And so it's interesting that in both these instances is that there's a reference to a mountain. Jesus was on the mountain when he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and he's come down from the mountain in Luke chapter 6. So the mountain was a place of revolutionaries and there is a very real sense that Jesus was a revolutionary. And if we don't get that, then we've not read our New Testament properly. Because we've kind of made a nice religious Jesus. You know, we, we, we draw nice pictures of him. And uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about that later on. We now have nice pictures of him. We put a halo over his head and we, we, we hang him up on walls or we put a cross up. And even the cross with him on is a kind of almost a... Uh, yes, it's, a, it's something we don't want to see, but it's kind of, a, a kind of almost a dignified thing. But Jesus was a revolutionary in every sense of the word. And the mountain was a domain of revolutionaries. And when, when you read this and you, you really read it, it's, it's so radical that it makes you think that all the other revolutionaries have ever gone before him who come after him have simply done tinkering around the edges. That's all that they've done. They've modified things to suit themselves and to suit their idea of what the world should be and how it should operate and so on. But this kingdom was unmistakably different. It was ground-shaking. It was a reordering and a realigning the things that are. This was the great challenge of it. It was shaking the political and the religious systems of the day. It wasn't about tweaking the outside. It wasn't shuffling the pieces and trying, to, to, trying it out another way to see whether this would work better. This kingdom uh, was about changing at the very core of humanity, at the very core of our hearts and lives, the, the source and the motivations uh, from which each of us lives, works, and serves. And that's why when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you read the Gospels, uh, Jesus' word gets under our skin because it can confronts our thinking. It confronts the way we do life. It confronts the way I do life. It confronts the way we do marriage. It confronts the way we do family. It confronts the way we do our social lives. It confronts the way we do business and so on. So this word, this word of the kingdom... Was a, was a word that was going to shake the political systems of the day. It was a word that was shaking the religious systems of the day. And it's right there, even in Jesus himself. When you look at Jesus, here is God born in flesh. That was, that was radical in itself. And again, the problem for us as Christians is we, we celebrate that every year and we, we sanitize it and we, we, we enjoy it. And it is right, good that, that we, right and good that we do enjoy it. But we can somehow lose the sense of what was taking place in the birth of Jesus. God did not do this kind of thing. Because human flesh was contaminated. And yet this God, our God, comes and he's born as a baby in real human flesh. This was radical. No God in, in any other culture, no God of the Greeks had ever done anything like this. This God, the one who is from everlasting, who claims to be the God, suddenly comes and he takes on flesh. He's born in Bethlehem. He grows up in obscurity. It's not a palace in the middle of the city somewhere. He's born in the south, but he's raised in the north. We forget that one. That even in Israel there was a divide between the north and the south. The religious and the prosperous were largely down in the south. 
And the north was much like we think of it these days, where there's great need, there's poverty, and so on. He didn't live in the big city, but a place where people are somewhat disparagingly, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, we've heard of this place. We've never heard of anyone coming out of this place that's any good whatsoever. Can anything good come out of there? And he had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have some big mansion somewhere with a nice bed to lay his head on. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that was a shocking thing that this, this, this man who is God comes and he, he stoops and he washes people's feet and he, he mixes with all those people. The religious people were saying, you don't go with those. Wait till they get better and then, then, you, can, then you can mix with that. He mixed with the sinners. He went to where they were. He ate with them. He did the things the religious people of the day didn't want to do. Came not to be served, but to serve. We have a radical king. He didn't wear amazing robes and walk around with a crown on. He just looked as ordinary as a man in the street. As he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He was a king who came, shockingly, riding on a donkey and not driving a Rolls Royce. I mean, surely in those days he should be on some magnificent charger, shouldn't he? That's what kings do, isn't it? They come riding on a charger and say, look at me, I am the king. But he comes riding on a donkey. And even when they wanted to, they began to see something about him. And they thought, maybe, just maybe, this, this is Messiah. Just maybe, this is the deliverer of Israel. And as they were beginning to think like that, what does he do? He climbs on that donkey and he goes into Jerusalem. Conflicting their ideas as to who he was. It's right there. Scripture says, also, I mean, we do these paintings, don't we? We see statues, images of Jesus, but Scripture says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't stand out from the crowd. That's encouraging, isn't it? You might fail. You don't stand out from the crowd. doesn't matter. The beauty of Jesus on your life makes all the difference. Isn't that right? But we want to elevate him in some way. We want to give him something that causes him to to stand out in the crowd, but he doesn't. And it's right there in those that he chooses to bless. So in that sermon, he shocks shocks them by saying, blessed are the the poor and the broken, etc., etc. Poor in spirit. The unblessed, he blesses them. Poor in spirit, spiritually, you know, they're poverty-stricken. There's the simple-minded, there's the the untalented, those who weren't making the grade and the religiously unsophisticated. And he comes along and he says, you are blessed. Wow. And they, who were in that condition, received that message with... Open arms, open hearts. And the king touched them. He touched them deep within. Their lives would be changed forever. 
It's right there in the, the lifestyle that he unpacks. And if we had time to go through all of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you find it covers, it's covering good works, it's covering self-control, anger, sexual expression, oaths, loving enemies, giving alms, prayer and fasting, wealth, health, loyalties, anxiety, judging others, profanity, the golden rule, the narrow path, integrity in word and deed, and avoiding false teachers. There's, there's three chapters there that are absolutely packed that could keep us going for a lifetime. You know? And perhaps one of the problems for us is we, like the world we live in, we move too fast. We say, oh, I've read that chapter, I'm moving on to the next one. I've read that book, I'm moving on to the next one. When actual fact, we've never got the message. We've kind of read it on the surface, but we've not allowed it to, if you like, get into our hearts, to really sink in. It's right there in the, in the lifestyle then that Jesus unpacks. And when you, you read that Sermon on the Mount, there's, this, this is not about behavior modification and adjustment. We live in a world that, that does that. You can go outside of the church and find behavior modification and adjustment. Jesus was talking about radical transformation. A transformation of the heart and the mind that would change the whole dynamic of the way a person lived and worked. And one thing that we have to learn as Christians is that the ways of God are fundamentally different to the ways of men. Have you discovered that? Have you discovered that? Yeah. The ways of God are fundamentally different to the ways of men. God turns conventional wisdom on its head. He says in Isaiah 55.8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. And then in the New Testament, Jesus cranks that up to high pitch. And Jesus says this in Luke 16, verse 15, What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Are we, are we getting something here? There's something going on. Jesus is saying... Yeah, the way you do it, and you've always done it, sorry, it's wrong. Not only that, it's an abomination in the sight of God. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. That's that's saying something. The The way the world thinks and acts doesn't even grade with God. It's not even on there. And that's why when you read the the story of Scripture, it's such a shocking story. And it confronts us in so many different ways. So Christians need to be schooled in kingdom dynamics. In the ways of God, we need to understand the ways of God in our lives and in the church. There's a a deprogramming and a, a reprogramming that has to take place if we are to understand God and how he works within us and to truly engage his purposes. And the Sermon on the Mount does that. It brings in a different order it brings in a, a counter-intuitive wisdom. And in many ways, we, we shouldn't be surprised because when you look through Scripture, you discover this is going on right the way through Scripture. So God calls a man called Abraham, Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. He comes to him, he appears to him, he speaks to him, and he leaves that place. He leaves everything. He leaves his security, his culture, everything that he has known and goes on a faith journey. You think of Sarah, his wife, 
God waits till she can't bear children to fulfill the promise that he's given to Abraham. See how contradictory this is to human wisdom. We think, God, why didn't you do it much earlier? Why didn't you, you know, get on with the business? Why didn't you bless them in that way? But God is revealing something, and he will reveal it right the way through Scripture. You think of the, of the Battle of Jericho. And there they were. They had had battles. They knew how to do battles. And Jericho is coming, and God says, I want you to march around it seven times, and on the last day, seven times. So once a day, seven days, and on the last day, you do it seven times. And then you give a big shout, and the walls come tumbling down. Talk about a battle strategy. Talk about something that is contrary to the wisdom of man. And yet we know the story that God does just that. You think of God choosing a shepherd boy to be king of Israel. You think of then how uh, that, that young man also was chosen to, to kill Goliath. And the means he uses is, is not bows and arrows. It's not cover, being covered in armor. It's as a shepherd boy with a sling in his hand and some stones. And I love Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'd like to just turn there for a moment. We can see something of this other wisdom of God. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul refers to it as the foolishness of God. And he says that this foolishness of God is actually wiser than men. And it's just, just so beautiful. So you read there in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, it, it, we know it is the very power of God. As the, as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God hasn't made the wisdom of the world to look. God has made the wisdom of the world to look foolish, since God, in His wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe, or the foolishness of, pre, of the message preached. It is foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolishness to the Greeks who seek wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all non nonsense. But to those that God has called to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Wow. So there, Paul refers to the wisdom of God as the foolishness of God. Because that's what it looks like in our eyes. When he speaks of the cross, it's, it's a scandal to the Jews. If he was the Messiah, he couldn't be crucified. And if he was crucified, he can't be the Messiah. That was their logic. And to the Gentiles, it was just simply moronic. God, God, God suffer? God can't suffer, suffer. He doesn't do things like that. He is something totally other than we are. He doesn't connect with this stuff, and so God doesn't suffer. So kingdom dynamics then frequently work the opposite way to the ways of this world. Everything tends to sort of go in this kind of motion which is diametrically opposed to what obtains in this world, especially, especially when it panders to the pride of man. Because God will not give his glory to another. Will not give his glory to another. And to read further down in that scripture, it says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy, 
when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who, who are powerful. And God chose despite the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. And he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. Amen? Let me ask you, do you know him this morning? Do you know this amazing king who became a servant king, who humbled himself, took on flesh, lived here, served, went to a cross for you, died in your place, that you might be forgiven and that you might live in relationship with him eternally. Do you know him? Do you know the power of this gospel? Reality is you don't need to do anything because he's done it all. There's no fine print. All we do is believe in him and everything he's done. We repent. We change our minds. We believe and confess with our mouths that this indeed is the Christ, the Son of the living God who has given his life for us. So kingdom dynamics, dynamics frequently work the opposite way to the world. <coughs> every valley is exalted and every mountain and hill is made low. Those things that are considered disadvantages relating to appearance and poverty and lowliness and unskillfulness, illiteracy, backwardness, are exalted in the kingdom of God. And so-called advantages such as beauty and wealth and high status, intelligence, skill, education, sophistication are made low. Not that they are nothing, but they are made low. Because God would not have us depend on those things. And so political power, religious power, business principles, consumerism, social engineering are not the order of the day when it comes to the kingdom of God. In prepping for this message, I've read some stories of of Christians, churches, who've who've got into doing it the way the world does, and then God's undone them. And that's a hard place to go. It's a hard place to go. So it's better to learn as soon as we can that the ways of God are different to ours. Stay close to him, stay tuned to him, to learn to listen to his voice. Ezekiel speaks of a time when there will be a total reversal of fortunes. All the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree and dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. So let's have a look at a little bit closer some of the aspects of this, this dynamic that goes on in the kingdom of God. We referred a couple of weeks ago, a couple of three weeks ago to this radical love, this, this mercy, this grace, this forgiveness. And, and, and brothers and sisters, we need to keep preaching this, we need to keep sharing this, because this is Christianity 101, but it's the hardest lesson to get. All the while we withhold forgiveness for somebody else, we haven't got the lesson. 
All the while we withhold blessing from another, we haven't got the lesson. We haven't understood the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, love your enemies. It's a gospel of non-retaliation, of, of non-resistance. And that, that, that goes contrary to our worlds because I want to suck it to him. Don't we? I, I want my pound of flesh at times. But that's not the way of Jesus. You could pick up a whole lot more on that and I'm, I'm just going to throw these things out for you to, to think about. It's feeding your enemy. When the coat is asked for, it's, going, it's giving the coat. It's going the extra mile. Jesus' teaching on grace was absolutely infuriating to some people. And that's where we need to get. This infuriating nature of the grace of God. Forgiveness, more forgiveness, more forgiveness, more forgiveness. And not only do I forgive you, but blessing, 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 blessing. We need to get to a culture where grace is actually infuriating some people. And they come along and they say, wow, is that what God's really like? Is that really how he, he loves you and how he, he, he loves others? How he wants us to love others? So it's, there's a radical love, and, and I pray that we really get this. More mercy, more grace, more forgiveness. There's a radical attitude, and the radical attitude of the kingdom of God is humility. Jesus humbled himself and left the glory that he had with the Father. There's humility in that. It takes on flesh like ours. And then he serves. He gets down on his knees and he washes people's feet. There's humility. Okay, not to be served, but to serve. And then he goes to the cross in all its humiliation and he humbles himself on our behalf. So you don't have to travel far in the Gospels to find this, this radical attitude of humility. The God we believe in is a humble God. He really is. He doesn't come with dazzling lights, but in flesh with humble service. And then there's a radical reordering that goes on as we think about different things. If you've got your Bible and you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 19... Sorry, 20, Matthew 20. Here's, one, here's, 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 a, here's a parable that should get under your skin. Okay. <laughs> for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. That's pretty fair, isn't it? At nine o'clock in the morning, he's passing through the marketplace. He saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. Sounds fair, doesn't it? So they went to the work in the at noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. 
At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around. And he asked them, what have you been wor- where, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because nobody's hired us. And the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. And that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them. And beginning with the last workers, with the last workers first, when those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. Hear that? Each received a full day's wage. And when those who were hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. And when they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only for one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. And he answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. It isn't, isn't it against the law for me to, to do, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? And so those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. That got under their skin. <laughs> eh? I mean, you've been slogging it out all day long. You know the master's good. He's given you a place in the vineyard. He's paying you. And this master is such a kind master that although he's got plenty of people in the vineyard, he's still going down to the place where you hire people in the, in the center of the town. He's still going down there to see whether others have got their job whether they've been found work. And each time he goes, he finds there's still more people there who haven't got a job. He says, come, come work for me. I'll pay you. Whatever. And then right at the very end of the day, he says to a group of workers, come on, come and work for me. I'll pay you at the end of the day. We look at that on the human plane and say, Jesus, you're not being fair. You're not being fair. This is the upside-down kingdom that's the right way up. You know? This is the kingdom that challenges the very core of our our structures, our ways of behaviour, our ways of thinking. You know, we may have been a Christian for many years, and then somebody comes into the church, and God blesses them, and they take off, and, and suddenly they've got a role, and you think, oh my goodness... That's not fair. Why should they be doing that? You can play this out in all sorts of ways. But the king is the king of his own kingdom, isn't he? And he can do as he wills. Those who are last now will be first, and then those who are first will be last. To be filled, you need to be empty. To live... You must die. To gain life, you you must lose it. You can go and find these scriptures in your own time. The older, we find serving the younger. To lead, you must serve. It's not about resisting an evil person, but turning the other other cheek. If you're sued, it's about giving more. So let's go back again to Matthew chapter 5.
Matthew chapter 5. And you read these words. Verse 38. You've heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. For you've heard that what the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. There's a certain part of Christianity that actually believes the Sermon on the Mount is nothing to do with today. But actually it's all about when Jesus comes the second time and sets up his kingdom on earth. That's nice and convenient, isn't it? Eh? I mean, I'd like to think that because it would make my life a lot easier, wouldn't it? Eh? You just carry on and just do what we do. But that's not the way the kingdom works. This kingdom that God is bringing in is something that will challenge the kingdoms of this world. It will challenge the kingdoms of my own heart, my own life, my own experience. So you see there that this whole business of you know, going the extra mile. God, another mile? So you, you may know the story that Roman soldiers could compel somebody to take their equipment a mile. That was, that was the law. They could do that. And Jesus says, look, when when I'm a Roman soldier, those people that you really hate, that you really wish weren't here, and you want me to deliver you from, when that that, that soldier comes to you and says, please carry my equipment, and you carry it for the mile, you don't carry it for the mile and then say, thank goodness for that. Have your equipment back. Get out, you Romans. No, Jesus says, turn around and say to him, I would like to carry your equipment, another mile. We would say, you've got to be joking. But this is the kingdom of God. This is the way the kingdom works. This is the way we turn the, the, kings of the kingdoms of this world upside down. It's just so much, so much here, isn't there? To be rich, you need to give and not hoard. Suffering leads to glory. Forgiveness is unlimited. Not 70 times 7, sorry, not 7 times, but 70 times 7. You go on forgiving. And the big comes from the small, not the big. Think of the parable of the mustard seed. So it's not about a sword, which his disciples would like to take up at one point. It's not about politics. It's not about power in human terms. It's not about the big hit. It's about a different kind of life. Radical living, not by rules, but but a transformed heart. Knowledge of the kingdom that enables us to welcome every day as it comes. You see, in our minds, we either want all the Romans out so that we can do the kingdom stuff. Because how does it work when it's just a mess? They're still here. And that's part of the challenge of the kingdom message. That actually, 
It flows right now with your life, whatever's going on in it. There are certain things you want out of your life at this moment. Maybe certain people you wish were out of your life at this moment. You might wish you were in another country at this moment. There might be all sorts of things. But the thing about this kingdom is, you know, the weeds and the tares, they grow together. And, and there's, this, there's this mix within the kingdom of God. And God says we need to be very careful in that. But the reality is when we look at this kingdom message, it works right where you are, right where I am at this moment in time. I used to think of a time when I was a Christian, I'd pray for a better day. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so miffed with life and perhaps miffed with God that you were just waiting for him to give you a better day? None of you. I must be the only one then. I I really must. I'm confessing. This is me. I've been through times in my life where I thought, God, can't you give me a better day than today? You know? I've got one nod now. I've got two nods now. Two nods now. That's better. I feel a bit more encouraged. Okay. You know, we we get like that at times. This, This was the problem they were facing. God, kick the Romans out. Then we can live as you want us to live. And God says, no, the Romans will stay for the time being. And this, but this kingdom is coming, and by the way you engage with me and let me transform your heart, you are going to impact the world around you. It wouldn't be too many years before the Roman Empire was no more. And Christianity had a big impact on that. So it might be you, you're thinking at this moment in time, I could do this kingdom stuff if I was elsewhere, or my life was different. I want to encourage you this morning, you can do this kingdom stuff now. Because that's the radical dynamic of the kingdom of God. God is with you where you are. In that difficult situation you face, whether it's at work or at home, whatever the situation, whether it's in your street, God is with you. You are part of his kingdom purposes. And he wants you to live by a transformed heart and mind. And so it involves radical strength. The race isn't to the swift nor the battle to the strong. It's not depending on chariots and horses to use an Old Testament scripture. God's strength is made perfect in our our weakness. I I used to pray that God would make me really strong so I could really feel it. Do you know? Have you ever done that one as well? I want to be a really strong Christian. I'm going to take the world for Jesus. And actually you find God makes you weaker and weaker. Hands up. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Because he doesn't want you going around saying, look at me, cool. look what I've done. Look, impressive, isn't it? I've won ten people to Jesus this week. You know, just, just unleash me a bit more and I'll, I'll win the world. Now, God doesn't work like that, does he? And you can read the church history and find many people who never made the books but who are in God's book and have impacted the world in a way that we will never know until we get to heaven. Wonderful. Wonderful. We have this treasure in jars of clay. God, I feel like clay at times. I really do. A vessel that could easily be dropped and broken. But he puts this treasure in earthen vessels that his glory might be revealed. And so there's a radical wisdom here. It's not deduced by evaluating human experience or nature, but it comes through revelation. It comes by getting into the presence of God getting into the presence of the king. Right where you are, not waiting for a better day, but right in the middle of your messed up world and saying, God, here I am. 
What's your word for me today? What is your wisdom for that situation, that circumstance that I am facing? He calls us to co-work with him. But it's on a totally different scale to the way the world works. Let's stand and just come into his presence, shall we? Come and worship. Come and be with him in the chaos of your present life and, and know that God is there. Kingdom, kingdom dynamics works there. It's not waiting for the perfect situation. It's not waiting for you get, to get perfect. It's not waiting for you to fully understand it all. Just to be open to, be God, to God and to be vulnerable to him. To be in his presence and learning to hear his voice that, whereby he speaks his wisdom into your life. Wisdom as to how to speak to that particular individual, that person you're finding it difficult with. Wisdom about a work scenario. Wisdom on all sorts of levels that comes from heaven and has been released to human hearts.